Hello, I'm Rupert Soskin. And I'm Michael Bott. And this is the Standing With Stones Megalithic Podcast. This podcast is only made possible by monthly donations from our listeners who support us through Patreon.com. You can become one of our patrons for as little as a dollar a month by visiting Patreon.com forward slash Standing With Stones. So, welcome to the 8th Standing With Stones monthly podcast. And this month, we're going to be looking at prehistoric trades. Just how much do we really know? Not a lot, actually. (laughs) But we'll do our best. It's a fascinating subject. So, on with the show. But before we get to that, um, I mean, the first thing to mention is you may notice a slightly different quality to this podcast. <laughs> That's because Rupert and I are actually sitting next to each other in the very same room. Doesn't happen very often. Yeah, no, no messing with um, talking to each other over the uh, internet. And, uh, and uploading uh, files and hoping that they've come out all right. Yeah, yeah. So hopefully we'll still be friends after this. <laughs> and uh, we haven't knocked each other. Well, we out. survived a live broadcast together, didn't we? Isn't yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, as ever, um, have, you, have you been pushing back any boundaries? Oh, have I been pushing back some boundaries? Um, I absolutely have. And, uh, well, this month uh, we're off to uh, Bolkov in Poland uh, where archaeologists have discovered an engraved ritual spear made of ashwood and it's the oldest example of its type ever found in Europe. Uh, it's actually 9,000 years old and the engravings are really complex and intricate. Uh, excavations have been going on at this site for quite some time, and it's been interpreted as a Mesolithic shamanic sanctuary. Really? It has, actually. And I know that normally, you know, I, I shudder at the notion of uh, of these kind yeah. of suppositions Perhaps about the religious and the spiritual. Along. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but but they're they're actually in in no, you know in this no. instance there there does seem to be yeah, yeah. a good justification for it. Um, basically, using X-ray technology, the, the wonders of modern tech, you know, the things we can do now. Using X-ray technology, they have been able to get a really good look at the engravings. And they do seem to show stylized human and animal figures. And one of the human figures is wearing a mask with branching antlers. Oh, now, you know, brilliant. we've seen a few of these stuff, things yeah. coming up uh, recently. Uh, I think one of the interesting aspects here is that we seem to be uncovering more and more details about people from this period. You know, over the last months, we've discussed the evidence for sophisticated food and drink, for example, being found in Mesolithic sites. And this takes us for once with almost absolute certainty, as I said, into the ritual and spiritual side of life. You know, one of the figures appears to have his arms raised as if in some kind of dance. Yeah, it's, but, it, but it's, it's intriguing, though. When did it become a thing to carve this sort of imagery onto what is essentially a weapon? Yeah. yeah it also <laughs> makes me wonder what um, other items are made from wood that you know, we've never found. Uh, yeah, it, it is. It's an interesting point. Uh, you know, 9,000 years is a long time for wood to be preserved. But, but you, you remember some months ago we talked about the Shigir idol? the enormous yep. wooden figure of a yep. man found in a peat bog in Siberia. Well, you know, granted that was 
older still. Yeah, I'm getting on for 3,000 years. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But, uh, but on your point, though, obviously humans have been carving wood for so long and it's always been a surprise when we find something preserved from that long ago, even though mm. there are plenty of examples from over the millennia, Paleolithic, Mesolithic and Neolithic wooden items, from pots and baskets to weapons and utensils. What makes this find so rare is the depiction of people in what is clearly a ritual setting. Blimey, those are words we don't seem to be able to put in the same sentence very often. <laughs> Sorry? Well, clearly and ritual setting. <laughs> <laughs> What's happened, Rupert? <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Cle worried? Well, clearly and ritual. No, I said, oh, I'll go and stand in the dark corner, I think. <laughs> So, on to the news then. What have you got this month, Michael? Well, you started in Poland, so, um, yeah, we can stay there for the moment. Okay. And this, this is an unusual find, although the articles about it are being unnecessarily sensationalist. Mm -hmm. Archaeologists from Krakow's Jagiellonian University have found the 115,000-year-old finger bones from a Neanderthal child, right. which have passed through the digestive system of an extinct bird. Yes. Oh. No, it's all true. The find was actually made a few years ago, but the bones had been mixed up with other animal bones, and so it was only recently that they recognised the importance of the find. OK. Not surprisingly, most articles are talking about a child being eaten by a bird, but it seems far more likely that it was a scavenging bird which came across the body of the dead child. Yeah, that would make sense. Yeah. yeah. So, so how could they actually tell that the, bone, the bones had been eaten in the first place? From how porous they are. Okay. So uh, clearly the effect of digestive acids eating away the bone structure. Right. Now, actually, this is another boundary pusher because these are the oldest hominid bones ever found in Poland. Before the discovery, the record holder was a few teeth dating back about 50,000 years. Okay. Um, but the, the site itself is fascinating as well. They've been excavating there for years, getting progressively deeper and uncovering all manner of Neanderthal artefacts and animal bones. In fact, they found a number of Neanderthal tools close to the child's finger bones, presumably not contemporary. <laughs> so, um, but these were, these were found several metres below the modern surface of the cave. Oh, OK, that's amazing, really. I mean, we, we know Neanderthals were in Europe... 300,000 years ago, and they, okay. they only died out around 30,000 years ago. Mm. But you said they discovered these several metres below the current floor That's level. Can you imagine taking a slice through the floor of that cave and having a quarter of a million years of Neanderthal history in front of you? That's mind-boggling, yeah. Indeed. Anyway, so, uh, well, uh, moving on, have you got some news? Yeah, well, yeah, I do, yeah. I mean, this segues very nicely, actually, from yours, actually, because it's another case of new findings coming from old excavations. The egg-fed girl was found in Denmark. Spell that. It's E-G-T-V-E-D. Yes, because it sounds like she has been eating too many eggs. <laughs> the egg-fed girl. It does, doesn't yes. it? Yeah. I confess I hadn't registered that. Yes. I thank you so very heard much. Heard for the first time, it sounds like... Um, <laughs> the egg-fed girl. Yeah. Well, she was found in Denmark back in 1921. 
Sounds like she may have had some digestive problems. Uh, and maybe she did. Yeah. Uh, but she's uh, she, Sorry, her, her body know. has been in the National Carry Museum on. of Denmark ever since. Um, and in fact, she's a real national icon. She's way more widely known in Denmark than, say, the Amesbury Archer is in Britain. Oh, really? Yeah, hugely so. And the thing is, she appears... With a name like the Egg-Fed Girl, I'm not surprised. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Well, she certainly appears to have been a high-status young woman. And, and she was only in her late teens when she died. They reckon top back about 18 okay. when she died. Uh, but with the eternal march of technology, they decided to have another look at her remains. And she really does have an interesting story to tell. So guess what? We're back to isotopes. Hooray. <laughs> and in particular, strontium analysis here. Which, if you've been paying attention, dear listeners, <laughs> you will know all about from yes. last month's episode. So <laughs> her teeth have revealed that she grew up in what is now southwest Germany, which is 500 miles away from where her body was found. Do you, do you think we should do a quick re, re, recap of how strontium analysis works? <laughs> right yeah, now. Maybe, maybe we should. All right. Okay, a, a just quickly. Yeah. For, for, for those who <laughs> missed our earlier discussions, okay, so tr strontium is an element that gets absorbed in plant and animal tissue. Okay, and uh, it then passes into the tissues of anything that eats them. Um, so if you know if a sheep eats the grass, then the sheep takes on the the strontium from the grass, and because strontium isotopes vary with location, analysis can reveal with a really high level of accuracy where the tissues were formed, and because teeth are grown in childhood, we can tell where somebody grew up. And by contrast, hair and fingernails are growing all the time, so they can reveal where someone spent the last months of their life. Absolutely, yeah. So, get this, her hair and fingernails showed that she made two journeys between her childhood home in southwest Germany and Denmark in the months before she died. Really? That's, ex that's extraordinary. So do we imagine that she travelled all her life or that something happened in those last months which made the journeys necessary? Oh, and indeed maybe that actually led to her death. It's being able to read these kinds of intricate details that turn vague history into tangible lives of real people. Right. No, no. Gosh, you know... Do you know what happens so many times as we're sitting here talking, or you're sitting over down in France and I'm <laughs> sitting here, uh, is that you think, wow, that sounds like the really great beginnings of a novel here. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. You know, films, novels, Game of Thrones. Uh, you yeah. know. Anyway, uh, so anyway, talking about the real lives of people, I have another evocative piece, this time from Zurich. Okay, what happened in Zurich? What have you got? Well, the site was originally discovered during work for an underground car park, as they are, <laughs> by, the back, by the banks of Lake Zurich. It turned into one of the biggest excavations in 30 years, revealing an extensive Neolithic village of pile houses. What's a pile house? Uh, the style of houses built on stilts oh, to keep okay, them of course, clear yes. of waterlogged ground, um, along with the remains of wooden walkways. Wooden wa along with the remains of wooden walkways. Okay. So what is what is so different here is the, the archaeologists think they've found clear evidence for social segregation in the community. Oh wow! With some houses being significantly grander than others. 
Right. One part of the settlement was actually sectioned off from the rest by a wall of poplar posts. The larger houses contain more high-status artefacts like jewellery or quality axes. It's, it, uh, it's, worth mention, it's worth mentioning here that apparently wolf fang pendants were significant in the high-status houses. Well, that's interesting. Of course, anyone could quite understandably say that it shouldn't come as any kind of a surprise to find segregation in any human social environment, mm. but it's always a major step when tangible evidence goes beyond what our ancestors left behind and provides actual building blocks for our understanding of how people really yeah, live their lives. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and it's also worth mentioning that they found a 5,000-year-old wooden door. Oh, really? Would you believe? Uh, it looks like any other wooden door, really, but you have to bear in mind that this is all before metal tools, so all the panelling and dovetail joints were cut with stone tools, eh? Mm, that, that amazing? Yeah, that's lovely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like that. Like that very much. So, on to the main subject of this uh, podcast. Yes, this is a riveting one, really. It's always very intoxicating when there's something that... Uh, there's little bits and pieces unknown, but yeah. there are so many blanks. And how do you fill in those blanks other than just... You know, you try to apply a bit of logic. Um, <laughs> uh, and, and knowing that... well. Uh, I mean, you know, it, it, it doesn't matter what it is. That I mean, we kick off with uh, with the example of the uh, the cattle remains in uh, in Durrington that came yeah. from Orkney. So we we know that that happened. So clearly, whatever the trade route or practice may have been, yeah. we know that cattle got from Orkney down yeah. to Durrington. So you then try to fill in blanks of well, just but, how would that have happened? Yeah, and that's where you come up against the the blocks, and you have to look for. Um, corroborating evidence and uh, and the, that piece of evidence that uh, cattle from Scotland found their way to Durrington Walls it's a very blunt piece of evidence yes. um, um, it blows your mind uh, <laughs> but then it makes you scratch your head yeah. <laughs> and I, but, but I think one of the main things before we sort of launch into it about talking about uh, trade I think when we've looked into it um, the surprising thing has been is how deep-rooted trade was. Mm -hmm. um, uh, most of the evidence comes from evidence of axe-head trade. But how deep-rooted it was, how comprehensive it was, uh, the distances involved. And I think the main thing to hopefully uh, take away from this discussion is that it, it, it decouples the people that we're talking about, usually, you know, we're talking about people in relationship to the monuments and the standing stones and the mm. circles, etc., which tends to somehow root them in place. Yes. You know, uh, it, it um, to, to, I was going to say, well, it petrifies them, if you like. It, it, yeah, you know, it's a very good word. stone or rock actually, analogy. It, it, uh, the, uh, and so I think talking about trade frees them up as a vibrant... Uh, you know, yeah. dynamic uh, inter uh, interacting cultures, um, you know, from the length and breadth of the country. It, it's so true. I mean, it, it's almost as if, you know, if we were trying to analyse modern society by uh, by looking at regional town halls or something like mm. that, it just doesn't give you any flavour of what a people were actually about. You know, how do you fit the pieces together? Uh, I mean, you were uncovering stuff uh, about the uh, the water 
uh, waterborne roux. So it's, yeah. It's, now, you know, it makes sound sense when you uh, when you think about it. Of what you know, what's you you've got an island that is still heavily forested. What is the easiest way to get around? And the easiest way to get around is not going to be trying to carry everything through, you know, uphill and down dale through heavy forest. So, uh, but I, to be honest, I've never really thought no, about it. No, I, I mean, and, and to backtrack a, a, a little, I mean, the main evidence for trade of any kind uh, is the uh, evidence of uh, axe heads, whether they are finished axe heads or whether they are yes. rough, um, uh, rough out uh, yes. axe heads, are not completely finished, uh, and where they occur um, up and down the country uh, in relationship to where it is known they came from, mm. um, particularly we're talking about uh, axe factories such as those in Cumbria, such as the Pike of Stickle, yeah. and also down in uh, Cornwall, and there are others up and down the country, but those are the main two sources, I do um, believe. Uh, well, and Grimes, 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 Grimes. Grimes, Graves, Flint. Well, no. What I was trying to say was that that although it may seem uh, a, a bit of a reach to uh, emphasise the sea trade routes until um, you uh, find out that concentrations of axe heads mm. and axe head roughouts occur in the vicinity of coastal ports. Yeah. That uh, that pretty well nails. You can't get away then from the fact that these things were being, at least in part, mm. uh, um, to a large part, being traded uh, via sea routes. Yes, uh, down from the Humber down to the east coast, um, uh, 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 Norfolk, and round to the south coast, Pevensey, and yeah. uh, near Bournemouth. And, and as to be said, and on. I mean, you know, we know uh, about. The Scandinavian axes that yeah. have been found in Britain. We know about Italian axes yep. found in Scotland. Yeah. Um, so you know, the, it was a massively extensive trade, and you your mind boggles with the the questions that it, every little piece of knowledge just throws up a hundred questions in its wake. <laughs> uh, so you know, and and. and so, so what? What is the price of? What is the value? Yes, that's of it, an isn't axe. It? The uh, uh, the fact of the matter does not give us the how. It does yeah. not give us the why. Yeah. Uh, in uh, really, um, except that um, well, obviously axes were in demand. Yeah. But what was the yeah. method of exchange? But, but also, I think um, uh, one of the things that we're uh, we're very lucky with with axes is that. Uh, uh, then, uh, in fact, you said this uh, yourself earlier on when we were nattering that they're not perishable goods. Yeah, an axe is forever. Yeah, and uh, and so we are, you know, we're able to dig them up from absolutely anywhere. But think of all the things that would have been a part of everyday life, and that could be anything from string. You know, if you've got yeah. somebody in a community who who makes cordage. And, and that could be anything from thread for weaving your fabrics because they had some uh, some pretty sophisticated clothing back then. You know the the, uh, the the illustrations that we used to get in the in the nineteen sixties and and on. You know of uh, of our Neolithic ancestors in animal skins and looking like savages. Well, you know we know that uh, that they had some really very 
very nice fabrics yeah. going on. Yeah. Um, uh, well, the egg fed girl. The Apher girl, she, she was wearing fabrics that she was, in fact, she was wearing clothes that uh, you would not have thought anything strange if she passed you in the street today. Yeah. Uh, which is remarkable, really, for uh, for somebody from the Bronze Age. Yeah. But but the thing is that, you know, so all those um, th- those aspects of, uh, of cordage, so whether it's th- thread mm. or rope, you know, they've all got to be made and obviously there's not going to be anything left for us to find, unless one day we manage to yeah. find some random pieces That's and bobs it. It's brilliant, isn't it? The, the, the extent of this trade helps bring real colour yeah. to and depth to our lives that we have to, on the basis of this evidence of trade, we have to surmise on the stuff of yeah. life um, that, was, uh, that, that was around and had value for people and had tradable value for people. Before we sort of, um, you know, get a bit deeper on that, of course, the other uh, thing is, apart from the sea routes, of course, they were trading over land as well. Otherwise, yes. that wouldn't uh, work at all. And uh, what we've uncovered in our research is that um, there seem to have been several major long-distance routes mm. uh, up and down um, the country um, uh, along which trade occurred, most notably from East Yorkshire right down to uh, uh, near Bath and, uh, uh, and particularly from Grimes Graves from yes. North Norfolk uh, right down to... Ch- Chichester? Yeah. And Wessex uh, generally, you know. So the pl- the the place of demand seems to have been, uh, and and the place of most activity at Grimes Graves seems to correlate with period of most demand. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in in the Wessex area, it, yes, it, there are part of the well known route uh, of the Ridgeway. That's what it's called, isn't it? Yes, indeed. Uh, which extends up um, northeast. To right through southeast England, right up to uh, Grimes Graves, where it, um, between which it comes the Ickfield. Is it the Ickneald? Ickneald. Ickneald way. Ickneald way. Yes. Yeah. Perhaps I should walk that one day, or <laughs> or you know cycle it, or something. You know, or, or do we a charity do walk. Yeah, standing with stones, charity walk. Yeah, from from Grimes <laughs> Graves to. Um, <laughs> to, to Durrington Walls. That would work, wouldn't it? Mm. Oh, God, they're going to hold us to that now. <laughs> <laughs> but it's interesting, isn't it, that, that we can find, you know, if you follow any of those, the, the trade routes that we're, that we're fairly sure about mm. and find some of the really significant stone circles along the way. Yeah. And, uh, and that's how these routes have been de- divined. Yeah. There aren't any, uh, rem- you know, the, w- the roads weren't metalled, obviously. I don't mm. even think there were established trackways. There were sort of broad causeways along which the way would be found. I think well, if using- you've got dense forests, yeah. which, you know, back then Britain pretty much... Well, it was heavily forested, even yeah. though by the Neolithic we'd had an awful lot of land clearance, but... Um, but nevertheless, the uh, the land between settlements was still um, lush for- forest and woodland. So we have to you, assume. We have to, uh, so yeah, so you're, you're not going to have had a single road going through. You would have just had a direction that people travelled, uh, which, I, I mean, I don't know. I couldn't hazard a guess at how wide that might have been. Hmm. But, uh, you know, if you were travelling... Uh, 
It's well, hard to imagine. It's, we, we, you know, it's hard to knock out of your mind the the idea of a trackway, at least. Yes, you know that, yeah. that, that uh, you can follow. Well, I, I think one of the things too that, much uh, that, that local m- knowledge. That, <laughs> well, one of the things that makes it hard for us to step out of that mindset is that we've all grown up with you know our, our whole life experience is one of roads, mm. and so to imagine going from A to B without a road, you know, unless you're somebody who goes backpacking through mountains a lot. Uh, well, even then, you know, you've decided your route with the luxury of maps, be they Ordnance Survey or whatever. You know, you've planned your route very clearly in advance. Well, if you're going back to a period pre-maps and pre-roads and you just know that you want to travel in a southwesterly direction or what mm. have you, well, you're, you're not constrained to a footpath because there might not be one. Um, so you just need to be able to tell your direction from yeah. your, you know, your innate skills. But uh, it it does change very much the, uh, you know, the image that we have of uh, of how people would have got around the country. It speaks to being able to understand the topology. Is that the right word it of is, yeah. uh, of your landscape? Um, because well, topography, uh, you, really. But yes. yeah, um, we know one of the. Uh, trackways, trackways, for lack of a better word, is called the ridgeway, but mm. these tend to be called ridgeway tracks um, yes. because they follow particular yes. um, uh, higher ground, shall we say. Yes, I mean, it makes sense to travel on higher ground broadly. Yeah. You know, they're not, it's not like they're mountain ridges. No, they? no, no. It's, it's not no. like they're perceivable. Oh, you or I would soon no. get lost. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, sorry, we've got ordnance over Max. Yeah, so uh, it speaks to the idea not only of there being a class of people who are well experienced at navigating coastal waters, mm. but the class of people who are well experienced to navigating yeah. um, from one end of the country to other. Absolutely. And that's it, quite something without maps and without roads and et cetera. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've, we've, well, realistically, we've only lost it in the last few centuries um, as we've uh, detached ourselves from. Uh, from the land, but mm. uh, but yeah, certainly I think uh, even looking now at uh, places where, whether it's a stone circle or whatever prehistoric site, where the road runs through it. <laughs> so for thousands of years, you know, the the road is only now an extension of the footway, the footpath that was there, yeah. and uh, you know it it. It, it's very telling of if, you know it, if it takes five thousand years for a donkey track to become a road, mm. uh, then you know mm. we, we shouldn't complain about the road's presence. It's uh, it, it's where we've always travelled. But aside from the long distance travel, there is really strong evidence for the, a very strong driver. There must have been for short distance travel mm. because we have the Somerset levels. Wooden tracks, starting with the sweet point. track. Yes, good point. Yeah. Yes, because it doesn't sound like much, but there was an enormous amount of effort uh, mm. put into in, into making these wooden walkways. Yes, um, sweet track, I believe, is a, a meter wide and five, I can't four, how long four or five it is, is it? kilometers long. Yeah, I mean it's massive. 
well, it is massive when you consider the amount of wood that's involved in the amount of work that is involved in you know supporting a trackway across what is effectively you know marshland and but hand done no machinery I absolutely mean, uh, yeah. You know, yeah so i i don't know have they calculated man hours of uh, work no on I, don't that? Think, I don't think uh, i don't think that um, they have but we just take so many of these things for granted that's a staggering undertaking and to yeah. have made something that's kilometers long yeah uh, well clearly it was of massive social importance absolutely you wouldn't yes. go to that effort otherwise yeah and that there are i think about 12, 13, 14, I can't think, uh, trackways like the mm. Sweet Track, which is over 4,000 years old. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, interestingly enough, it was right be- beside the Sweet Track that the um, uh, the Longbow was found. Oh, is that right? No, that's I didn't right. know that. That's right, yeah, okay. just beside. That's how it was preserved in the, in the, yeah. in the marshland, yeah, yeah. Um, just off the side, yeah. It's, I think it's the Mayor Longbow, M-A-M-A-I-R. The longbow, that's where it was found. You know, so um, <laughs> was he trading longbows? Was it, was it a, yeah, you know, who knows? Yeah. Uh, was it a sacrifice, uh, an offering? <laughs> who knows? Who knows, yes. Um, but the, 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 the point is, and I, well, I didn't know also before that there are uh, established trackways across Exmoor and, and, and Dartmoor and that, that kind of thing, which are... Uh, Fairly easy to uh, to discern. Yeah, but again, you see, the thing is that we shouldn't actually perceive those as as any different. You know, the, the, yeah. the reality is that we have a thing. You know, take Dartmoor as an example because we do mm. love Dartmoor. But <laughs> um, but you know, the fact is that uh, people don't live uh, all over the moor anymore because five thousand years ago we pretty much ruined it from deforestation. <laughs> And then, you know, natural yeah. erosion, because of the deforestation, natural erosion just made it completely uninhabitable. And it's not of good enough quality grazing to mm. warrant having a farm up there where you can have loads of sheep. So so the moors have become the barren landscapes that we see today, whereas for our ancestors, uh, you know, they would have been travelling backwards and forwards across those moors as, the, as much as they did... Uh, you know, everywhere that we still have our modern towns and cities, mm. which, mm. you know, obviously, the, you know, the towns and cities are where they've always been. They've just continued growing and growing and growing. Yeah. Um, so anyway, look, having established the fact of trade mm. and the evidence for it, mm. you know, we talked about the long distance routes, um, we talked about short distance routes, mm. and which is all fine and good but for those things to exist at all there's got to be the impetus there's got to be the desire there's got to be the demand to make it all worthwhile Mm. and this simply doesn't answer the questions about how without money remember yeah it's easy for us to talk about trade long distance trade when we have money and banks and mm. transfers and and that kind of thing. But without that thing, money, mm. how on earth do you exchange one thing for an, for another yeah. over distance? Yeah. What is the perceived value and, of anything? Take your pick. Yes, yeah. So should we be silent for a moment while we <laughs> expose that? Yes. <laughs> yes, a, a tumbleweed moment. Yes. But... It, it, it is a tumbleweed moment. I mean... 
we've said it a hundred times. What price a cow? Mm. Um, or or what price an axe? You know, if, if you've gone to the trouble of making this beautiful Langdale axe, they have found uh, a number of times they have found uh, you know something as beautiful as a Langdale axe. They found it in a grave, buried with somebody, yeah. and it's never been used. Yeah. Um, so, you know, what price that? Clearly, if it's buried with somebody and it's never been used, that had a value. So how did that equate? You know, what, what if it, did you, you know, were you an, an axe maker and you made however many of these and then you travelled around selling them or trading them for, for whatever? Mm-hmm. Or, or did you just stay in your own location making axes and somebody else came? And took them from you to, t- to go and trade them around the country. You know, well, how did any of this actually happen? How would somebody coming to you know what you wanted in exchange? Yeah. Because barter's want, fine yeah. over short distance mm. as a concept. Mm. But it's a much harder concept to imagine taking place over over distance. Well, if, you, if you're doing an overland one, so we, I mean, we, we can come back to the, uh, uh, the, the seaborne travel. Uh, uh, later on, but if you're travelling across country with goods, now let's say for the sake of argument that uh, that you're you've got a shipment of axes. So what, what size is your shipment? You know, what have you got? Twenty? <laughs> have you got a hundred? How many axe heads have you got? Because it's quite a lot to carry. So if you're carrying them in a bag over your shoulder, um, I mean, I dare say they were made of sterner stuff. You know, you could carry. Well, let's say thirty kilos. So, what's that going to be? Sixty. Let's, say, for the sake of argument, let's say fifty axes. You can carry fifty axes with you. Yeah. How far are you going to travel with your fifty axes? And what are you going to be trading them for? And how are you going to carry the things that you're trading them for? See, what you want is something with legs, so that you can ah. actually load up a cow. Remember, we don't have the wheel, folks. That's true. We don't have the wheel, but we might have four legs or uh, or any multiplication thereof. So, so if you could load up a cow for carrying your stuff, and when you get to the other end, you're maybe you're going to trade everything that's on your cow and the cow as well, or maybe you're going to keep the cow and carry the other stuff back home on the cow. I don't know. What are you going to do? I don't know where this is going to go. I Rupert. don't know where it's going either. Because this is kind of... If we're talking about Neolithic here, then we're really talking pre-horse use, aren't we? The horse yeah. has really only kicked in in the Bronze Age. Mm. Um, yeah. So... <laughs> but this is the wonderful thing, that it does uh, open up. Uh, it really makes you think hard. About this, uh, about this topic. I mean, I'm thinking also that if you've got um, people who need to know the land, or people who need to know their way around coastal waters, that is their specialist job. Mm-hmm. Um, that is the thing, you know, because any skill you can't be itinerant with it. You have to be doing it day in, day out, for you to be competent. What I'm, what I'm saying is, is the amount of time that has to be devoted to doing something in order to be competent at mm. it takes you away from doing uh, the usual thing, you know, that we assume that communities uh, are fully involved in, in, in produce, in, in, in keeping themselves sustained. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but once you take people out of that equation and give them specialist jobs, how do they get paid? How are they looked after yes. if they're not? Do you know what you, you, you're saying that? Now, it's an, an interesting distinction to make here is that it, it's, it's fairly established that it was only really in the Bronze Age when agriculture really, you know, and, and domestic farming really bedded in mm. that people started really staying put because they now had land that needed to be protected, really. Prior to that, people, as far as we're aware, travelled quite a bit. Now, uh, what's the extent of the travel? You know, if we look at indigenous people around the world and and look at an average community of, say, 100 people-ish, roughly 100 people, uh, and I know that I'm just yeah, yeah. I'm spouting here, but but you know that's a, that's just an average figure from uh, for indigenous peoples. So if you had a community of about a hundred people, uh, and uh, and so everybody has roles within that community, and it could be that you're the one that looks after the cows, or you're the one that actually milks the cows, or uh, or you're one of the people who uh, makes cordage weaves weaves fabric, whatever. Mm-hmm. And then you've got the guys who are responsible for taking whatever surplus we manage to put together so that you can take it around the country to trade for other things. Or maybe you're just taking it to the next settlement exactly. along. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Um, just for some swapsies. So was a lot of this trade simply happening by osmosis, a kind of... You know, transfer from cell to cell, um, yeah, yeah, uh, from community to community. So, was what, there such a thing as a solitary, as as a as a long distance trader that went around? Well, I think we have pulling his neck back in. I was just going to say, <laughs> I was just going to say, well, yeah, we do because we know that we've uh, that they've got Italian axes in of Scotland. Course. Yeah, yeah, but. We don't know for sure that the Italian axes in Scotland, well, they could have gone from local bloke to local bloke to local bloke until they ended up in Scotland. Yeah. We actually, we don't know if they arrived from Italy to Scotland within three weeks or a thousand years. But here's the thing. Those uh, axe heads, those Italian axe heads, looking at them, they yeah. trump stuff that was coming from they Langdale in terms of visual... Yeah, beautiful. Absolutely gorgeous things. I think you have to know what you're asking for. Mm-hmm. For something like that to end up in Scotland, mm-hmm. you have to be a demand for it. It just doesn't work it work its way, because that's a precious item. It is really How precious. is it going to get but, there with but, security up into that into that place. Well, it, well you know, so you see what I'm saying? I do, but could you have a situation where, you know, you, as a trader, mm. you have come across these uh, these axes? Yeah. You know, I mean, maybe you, you went to Italy because you had some stuff that you were trading down there. D- didn't they find... Um, now, oh, this is where my memory lets me down. But uh, at Stonehenge... Yeah. Did they not dig up some bloke who uh, who was from? He wasn't from Italy, I don't think. 
but there were remains of somebody, it might not have been Stonehenge, it was certainly Wiltshire, um, but he was somebody who they said he must have been in agony with his toothache. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, yes, and he'd come a long way, hadn't he? Yeah, he'd come yeah. a very long way. And it might not have been Italy, but it was somewhere like that anyway. Um, so, so, If we discover the uh, source of that idea, we'll put it in the show notes, we, dear listener, yes, yes, we will. I'll look it up. Um, but, not uh, making this up. But, uh, well, we are making some <laughs> <laughs> no, we're not. It's true. It's, not it's true. absolutely true. But but I, what I mean is that you know, supposing uh, that for whatever reason you were down in Italy, and you saw these axes, and you, and you just think, oh, do you know what? They'd go like hotcakes at home. Well, yeah. Uh, and so you would go to the bother of taking uh, uh, however many, if you had something that you could buy them with. Yeah. What would it's, that be? Exactly. You, but, but exactly. But you're doing that thing. If you, if you think, oh, that that would go well there, then you're buying something on spec. Yeah, you're making an investment. You know, you're sort of being entrepreneurial. Oh, but you know, but I, what I, with? I think there have been wide boys throughout history. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, dear listener, <laughs> you can tell what deep water we're in here. <laughs> but nevertheless, I just hope you're really finding it a stimulating thing to to think about your brain may be going off in all sorts of di- different directions yeah. as, as well as, but, as ours are but, but, but the, the thing is that you know the, these are a real uh, the, these are real things you know so mm. w- w- the fact that we don't know that that the truth is probably any of the answers you came to come up with because people are just so yeah. different and somebody could have been absolutely daring and entrepreneurial or somebody could just have been shipping to order but see i remember when 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 my wife was in russia uh back in the 70s no she wasn't in russia where was she i think she was in yugoslavia and people were offering her ridiculous amounts of money for her afghan coat Uh, but i'll i'll lay my pair of twos on the table yeah um and say, I suspect that axe heads or axe roughouts themselves may have acted as a sort of money, a sort of bond, a sort of token. I think that's a lovely idea. Yeah. Uh, no, I really do, because it makes sense. It means that that you're carrying a raw potential for you. Somebody can yeah. make that any shape they want but you've still got the very basis of any universal currency. Because you've, you've got two things going with uh, an axe head that comes from a particular known location that has a particular quality, that is green, you know, yeah. that, that identifies it. Yeah. You can do two things. You can put it to use, mm. or you can put it on the shelf. Mm-hmm. It, and it is not perishable. Mm. That's why we're having this conversation now, because they're not perishable. They're yeah. the thing that remain that gives us the evidence of the trade in the first place. Yeah. And we find them, yes, they've been used, but also finding them ones that have not been used at all. Yes. Uh, and we assume, because you can do either thing with them, mm. you can either use... They have an intrinsic value, whether it be uh, mm. practical or whether it be intrinsic. Mm. So that's a really, really strong quality. It's a very good point. And and actually... Is that the time to talk about the relationship between trade and stone circles? Or the possibility of the relationship between trade and stone circles? We can't avoid it, really. In fact, 
something you said five minutes ago, and I can't, I can't if I must remember exactly what it was. <laughs> but you made me think. Oh no, we were talking about um, uh, swapses with uh, you know with the next village sort of thing. Yeah. You know that m- maybe we should be looking at stone circles as hubs, yeah. rather than uh, you know a, 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 a major uh, you know a major part of a route. You know that somebody would travel. 500 miles to get to this stone circle you know maybe it is mm. a hub and that from any of these major stone circles mm. that things just spread out in all directions yeah and i think um it's another thing that informs the possibility that axes had a value way and above their practical value yeah because you get concentrations particularly you know round about the uh, Langdale axe factories mm. of these magnificent stone, you know, the largest stone circles, some of the largest and most significant stone circles yeah. that there are, and they're of a particular type as well. They are definitely yes. stone circles, it's stones of, circles of stone, whether used for trade or not, mm. um, that they're probably used for trade and the other stuff, and the other mm. stuff, and the other stuff, you know, for gathering, for, for you know, coming together, for discussion of this, that, and the other, for yeah. inter-community um, uh, talk, for exchange, for weddings, for festivals, for what have you. Mm. But uh, I think the utility uh, of a circle as, an, uh, as a place where you go, where you behave in a certain way around trade, where it enables a, a conversation to take and, and, yeah. and a sort of, I hate to use the word sacred, but there's a, there's a kind of uh, sacred thing around barter, around trade, where yes. people have to behave in certain well, ways with each other yeah. in order for the trade, the trust to be established, that trade can take place. And often that's to do with place. It's not, it's not just the mm. words people use with each other, but they have to have a sense of place where this, this particular... Uh, invi- this particular bond of trust occurs, and sometimes well, I, a building or a space can give that. How does a hinge separate itself? I don't mean physically. You know, we know that it had a, d- yeah. <laughs> a ditch <clears> and, a, <throat> and and normally a bank, but how did how was a a hinge so fundamentally different from a stone circle? So why, uh, you know, what was the usage at somewhere like say Castle Rig? That was fundamentally different from the usage of somewhere that was, you know, roughly around the same period. Well, um, I hate to say it, but um, <laughs> my instinct about uh, ditches and banks is it's about animal control. Yeah, I know we do say this. Um, it, it 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 just it just kind of makes sense and, and it just and again it lends if you think about it if you think it through mm. if you take, take that and think it through a bit it does lend more weight mm. to the idea of certain places being to do with trade of a certain mm. kind or ceremony or whatever you know we have bull, you know that's what I, that's what I'm trying to get to, to, to grips with is that we have variety of henges, we have variety of stone circles, yeah. we have uh, a magnificent henge with a stone circle in it, with a, a blooming massive timber posts inside it, which yes. render it useless for a lot of the things we're thinking about right now. And I'm thinking about Stanton Drew, obviously. So we do have yeah. a variety uh, within 
these designs that speak to, um, well, simply a variety of purpose. Yes. A circle is a multi-purpose unit. That is certainly true. I, I think it's actually quite clear that we could go on for really a very long time because we're fishing around in our own minds to create a, a story for something that we can't lay down, that we can't be certain about, as is so often the case is when we're talking yeah, about Yeah, we can't stuff. be certain. We just so have these, We have these tantalising clues that we know that certain things happened, but we don't know what happened in between, yeah. do we? But I, uh, but as I said, I, I hope um, that you find this discussion uh, really <laughs> stimulating. And as I said, hope it hope it helps you to give colour to these people that we're talking about, mm. um, to give variety to the levels in the community, the levels of society um, that people had to operate, and in order for this nationwide trade to function. In fact, international trade. International trade, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so it's a discussion. I hope it's been a stimulating one, but I don't really think there's uh, there's much more to... Uh, well, we could go well, on. Well, we could go on indefinitely, <laughs> but we're not going to do that but because the, uh, you would stop tuning in every month. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah. We'd be disappearing for <laughs> own... Uh, yeah. Mm. Well, that was fun. That was fun. What should we do now? Um, do you know what? I think um, I think we've got question time, haven't we? Question time. A little light relief then, you mean? Yeah. Almost. Almost. Yeah. <laughs> question time. Have we got anything this month? Have we got anything at all? Has anybody asked us a question? Well, do you know what? Uh, yeah, they have. I couldn't resist this one because it ties in with everything that we've just been talking about. Everything? Um, yeah, I know. Phil Haywood. Hello, Phil. Um, actually, Phil didn't tell us where he lives. Um, but uh, Phil asks, uh, he says, I've seen a Langdale axe for sale at what seems like a very good price. How can I tell if it's a genuine article? Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Well, I've, actually, I've been there. Been there, done well, that myself. It, it, you have? Yeah. yeah. That yeah do you want to tell mind. him? Okay. Well, I paid 85 quid, and I don't know where it... I mean, it came off eBay, um, yeah. and it looks like the real thing, and I can't think anybody would take all that time and trouble to go and get a bit of uh, Langdale rough out no. and spend all that time to make it look absolutely beautiful. And only, it cost only 85 quid. That yeah. just doesn't make sense. And make it that little bit just not quite perfect. Oh, yeah, so, absolutely. You know, that would be, yes. Uh, uh, yes. Uh, I think, um, uh, well, what can I say? I mean, there's good news and there's bad news, Phil, really. Mm. Um uh, and that's that. We there's no way in the world you could tell from looking at it whether it's real or not. Um, so long as it's made of uh, of of the right, the right green stone. Yeah. Um, and green, a, green is helpful, isn't it? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's there's enough references green, in uh, online, you know, where you, yeah. where you can you can tell exactly what a a Langdale X should look like. Yeah. And there's quite a variety, uh, isn't there? There are quite pale green ones. Yeah. Mine's a dark green one. It's got yeah. little bits of sort of yeah. dark, so dark... It's a greyish green. I mean, you know, it's not like they're vibrant um, green at all. But anyway, so you, you you should... You should be able to tell whether it looks about right. Um, but, you know, if it was a good facsimile... I mean, as Michael just said, why would anybody bother... You know that's no mean feat to take a piece of that stone and uh, uh, and 
cut it to shape and yeah. polish it so beautifully. It's a huge amount of work. Uh, even if you're doing it with modern machinery, it's a huge amount of work. Yeah. Uh, so I think but somehow, it's, but also you can tell the human touch. I think in in, in the one I've had particularly, it's just a beautiful thing to hold uh, and touch, and you can tell whoever made it made it with he put himself into it. Yeah, yeah. There's, a, there's an element of, of, of that, you know. Yeah. yeah, I think that's not unreasonable. But you know, I mean, if you if you wanted to really do the number, you you could have it analysed. In fact, I just mentioned yes. it a couple of minutes you know, ago. What you need is an optically stimulated luminescence machine. That is exactly what you need yeah. because um, with um, <laughs> optically stimulated luminescence, um, <laughs> OSL for short, uh, uh, in fact, they use it not just for uh, – it's not just for stone. You can use uh, – they use it on, uh, on ceramics and stuff that you can tell when a surface – was exposed to light because of the way it degrades in uh, I think it's UV that causes the de- causes the degradation. So uh, so they can actually test the surface of worked stone and tell when that piece of stone was exposed. Yeah. Um, Are we actually helping Phil here? Uh, well, I can't <laughs> imagine that Phil's going to go and take it to a lab and say, "Here, test this, please, no, for me in your exactly, OSL yeah. department." Uh, I, I would honestly say, you know, if it's if it looks like a, a, a good price for you, then just go for it and buy it. Because I I can't imagine that anybody would have gone to the trouble of uh, uh, they put all that work yeah. into selling it, uh, into making it, and then sell it to somebody. If you made something like yeah. that, you'd want to keep it. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> and obviously there are, you know, you can you you put your own value on it. If it looks right mm. to you, then, you know, take it away. But, of course, there are specialist dealers, etc., you know, which uh, uh, in order to maintain their reputation, they have to put a kind of provenance on, on yeah. things, you know, if, if if it came from a particular archaeological find or whatever, yeah. then that should that should be documented. Yeah. Um, but, apart, but in the absence of documents, no, you've got to use your judgment. But it's yeah. an odd thing with axes. You, you can have really rare items that have got hardly any monetary value, and other pieces that are comparatively common. Yet, because people just want them, the value yeah. goes way up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's true. It's true. It's true. I, well, I hope that's been a, and some kind of helpful. I can imagine it hasn't, but we we, we do our best. <laughs> Let's move on to Stonehead of the Month. Stonehead of the Month? Stonehead of the Month. <laughs> it's the, I mean, the thought that you poor folk out there have had to wait this long uh, to... Uh, I, mean, I suppose you could have skipped forward, you know, if you really wanted to. You would have skipped through <laughs> 50 minutes of us, yeah. Rupert and I, talking together to get to this point when you find out who the Stonehead of the Month... <laughs> Is. Who is the Stonehead of the Month this month, Michael? I bet even if you are Stonehead of the Month, you're, you know, you're thinking, what? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, am I going to get anything? Do I get anything for this? Yeah, that's good. Anyway, no, no, you get a lot of kudos. You get a lot of, you you get a lot of people co- having looking you up on the internet. Yeah, you do. That ca- must count for something, mustn't it? <laughs> Finding you out, stalking you, maybe. Who knows? <laughs> Nevertheless, we've taken a slightly different turn with uh, we, we, selecting our Stonehead of the Month this month, haven't we? We have a little bit, yes. Who have we got, Michael? Uh, we have uh, a gentleman called Frank Lauman. 
who has come to our attention simply through his stunning photography. His pictures are of, really rather lovely. Uh, Frank is uh, is a member of our community, obviously. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, yes, his work is actually quite beautiful. So, yeah, Frank uh, is a photographer. Um, I, I think, uh, to a certain extent, he's a photographer after both our hearts as well. I, mm. I notice, uh, I don't think his photography comes cheap, I have to say. <laughs> I, he's not an iPhone photographer by the looks mm. of it. No. Uh, there's, a, an, there's an interesting lens or two I detect uh, with mm. some of uh, his work. Um, but uh, Frank is from Germany, as far as I can make out. He has a website. I think it's in development uh, at the moment. But um, right. uh, it, it, keep, keep a look out for Frank's uh, work. Um, have a look, you know, go and like his page on, on Facebook. Um, He's posted stuff on the community, hasn't he? Oh, certainly, yes. yes. So you could uh, you, you could uh, have a look for him in there as well. Um, yes, or, or other people have shared his work into the community. Yeah, I'm not quite yeah, sure yeah. Uh, which way round it is. But the the point is about it's not it's you know photography is not accidental. It's it just it's, you can't get the stuff that Frank gets. I mean, it's, he doesn't just take photographs of stone circles and, and, and of ancient monuments. He does other stuff as well. Um, but the point is, what you can tell in his photography is that he really takes a lot of care. He yeah. takes care to be in the right place at the right time. That yeah. man must be getting up very early in the morning indeed to yes. get some, to some very remote places mm. to be there just when the sun is popping mm. up over the, over the horizon. Yeah, yeah it, it is and the dedication it. to really it. It really takes quite something. I think yeah. uh, people sometimes underestimate and wonder why their photography doesn't look as good as some other, somebody yeah. else's photography at the same site. And that's it. Yeah. It's just the dedication and the sheer... Yeah. You get out what you put in. Attention um, to detail and um, uh, making sure that you're in the right place at the right it, time. And it's also fair to say as well that his post-production work, so yeah. essentially yeah. you know everything that we would historically have done in the dark room while well, he's doing it and uh, it's just you know well considered yeah, um, uh, production you know after, after the, the event yeah. um, and it does it makes all the difference in the world you know it's uh, it, the, the post production oh, you know what We're, we've been asked to do a special oh, on photography yes. well that's something that's going to be coming uh, uh, coming along but it's you know <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah, just, well, I hope we get in touch with Frank yeah, we, and, and yeah, able to involve we, him in that. Yeah, we should probably do that. Um, but yeah, have a look at his work because it is—it's quite splendid, and he's uh, a, a very worthy a worthy stonehead of the month. Yes. So, yes. congratulations to you, Frank. Yes. And thank you. And yes. Thank you. thank you for being a member of the community. So, so. Getting near to the end now, yes, Rupert. Only, yeah. um, that can only mean one more regular thing, and that is a bit of um, a bit of whimsy. A bit of whimsy. A bit of whimsy. And we were scratching our heads. We couldn't think of anything whimsical this month. And then, do you know what? Earlier today, this very day, we were at the Roll Right Stone doing mm. the recce for our our next um, next film, yeah. and um, it was. Yeah. It's just one of those moments of just crazy serendipity. You think, well, that happened. Well, do you know what? We're, uh, because we're, it's the Royal Wright Stones and we're doing all this research for the Royal Wright Stones and apart from books that you can buy that included in all sorts of stuff about other stone circles, there are very few books that you can get 
that really give you mm. full welly information about what do we actually know about the Roll Right Stones. And, uh, and so we have been using uh, a book by Mr. George Lambrick, uh, who he is? Uh, well, he's, he's the authority on the Rollright Stones. He's, he's Mr. Rollright Stones, yeah. and so we're, and, and we're there at the Rollright Stones with his with, book, with his book, reading yes. from it. Yes, trying to decipher the Rollright Stones from his book. Indeed, we were. Yes, oh. and indeed, uh, we were telling folk. Or we were talking to the camera. We were making a little piece for our Patreon followers. We to, were. Yeah, sort of behind the scenes, here we are at the Rollright Stones. And there's a little figure in blue appears between us <laughs> in, in camera, in, in the distance, because it comes around the corner of the trees there. And I think, oh, there's somebody behind us when I was actually filming. But when we'd stopped and I and, uh, went to meet him, it gradually dawned on me that I recognised his face. And... Uh, <laughs> It was Mr. George Lambrick. <laughs> it's true. It's a true thing. <laughs> absolutely ridiculous. It was very funny. Yeah. Uh, so he's a good, uh, good, good chap. Um, his research on the Rollright Stones has no peers. Uh, no, it really doesn't. Has actually, no equal. Yeah. Um, and um, and indeed, he's one of the very few people that have um, undertaken any archaeological. Uh, yeah, um, archaeological uh, excavations there. Yeah, um, he also lives nearby, so he's also help. the kind of the de facto um, curator of the. Uh, yes, uh, he is kind uh, of custodian, of the custodian place, isn't of the he? place. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, there is a Royal Rights Trust. Uh, where, 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 who is he in the Royal Rights Trust? Does oh, he, I think he does. He write? Oh, yeah, I think he yeah. pretty well yeah. does. Uh, I need to double check um, on that, but we'll give you links, obviously, yes. to the Royal Rights Trust uh, we will as part do of that, this. But yes. we just thought that well, that happened. That uh, yeah. how yeah, how ridiculous was that? Yes, he was there actually because apparently there's um, there's a uh, the Smithsonian Institute are making uh, a film about uh, religious sites in the UK, and uh, there was a um, the recce department or the you know the producer and director of uh, the film there. Um, yeah, which is quite funny, really. After we've been talking about it as a as a hub of uh, axe trade, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but uh, yes, hey ho. So that is it. That is our bit of whimsy. Uh, yeah. Thank you, George. Hopefully, we might even get an interview out of George for the podcast. Uh, you know, what, I think we should try. I think I, I suspect we might have to nag him a little bit, but we'll give it yeah, a go. So he may be a bit shy. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> so there we are. Um, that is pretty well it as yeah, far as I can see. For, for number eight. Yes. So as ever, thank you so much for listening. All mm. your feedback and your comments are so um, so welcome, and we're so glad that we seem to be reaching more and more people uh, yeah. every month as, yeah. as well. Yeah. So, but do uh, bear in mind um, if if you enjoyed this uh, th this podcast, please do consider supporting us via Patreon. Um, if you go to uh, patreon.com slash standing with stones, um, you can find a way in which you can help us by donating a, a regular monthly amount from uh, as little as a dollar a packet of crisps. A packet the, of the packet of crisps, lovely. <laughs> <laughs> I have to think of something else. <laughs> I can hear everybody in chorus go all over the country going, back in the crisp. What is he like? <laughs> so imaginative. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
Yes. So uh, go there, have a look, uh, see if there's a, a level of support that uh, suits you and uh, help us continue to make the podcast, uh, to make the films that we love to make and yeah. uh, all the other stuff that um, that comes along. Uh, and if you've got any ideas about what you'd like us to do, yeah, please let us know. Yes, and let's do And keep sending in the questions. Please do keep sending in the questions, yes. If you've not already found us on uh, Facebook, uh, we have uh, the Standing With Stones uh, Facebook page uh, and we have a Standing With Stones community, which is a Facebook group you can join. We are on YouTube if you search for Standing With Stones and, of course, the website is at standingstones.net. That's about all I have to say right now. So, once again... Thank you for your attention. Hope you enjoyed that. Yes. And, uh, see uh, we'll, you again. S- we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.